This morning, if you would, we want to go back to the book of James. You remember, we began last week a series of sermons on James' epistle or letter as it's known. We actually started a two-part introduction to this epistle. And so last week was the first installment of the introduction. This morning will be the second, and I trust the final installment. And then we will get into verse 2 and following for this beginning the actual series on the sermons themselves on James' epistle. Last week you remember, and I'll just go through these very briefly, very quickly. I won't preach, re-preach them. But we looked at the title. Sometimes we take these things for granted or we just don't really know. We read them and then we go on. So we tried to explain to us this morning, uh, last week, the general epistle of James, what that meant. And so we dealt with that. And we gave the date, which we said we cannot be for sure because James didn't put one on there. So we don't know the timing of this letter. Some have given as far range as 48 A.D., all the way up through 60 A.D. None have put it across past the destruction of Jerusalem that I'm aware of. And then uh, thirdly, we took up the divine author whom we said is God. God is the true author of this book. And then we said, fourthly, the human author, though, is James. And we spent some time looking at which James, as there are several James in the New Testament, and we just weren't doing that to just to show you how fancy we could be about it. We also, you remember, brought out some applications to that. If it was James the Apostle, we looked at verse 1, and now he's considered a servant of God. He wasn't boastful here. He was humble. He was considering himself a servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. If it was James, the Lord's brother, which seems to be the... Pretty common consensus among commentators that I read after. If it is James, the Lord's brother, that is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, then too, there was some application to that. He doesn't let us own here that he is the brother of the Lord. Instead, he again is looked at as simply a servant of God. So we dealt with that. Fifthly, we looked to who it was addressed, and it's the Jewish Christians who are dispersed. And we gave the five different ways in which that could be taken. And then we also brought application from that. And then we said the salutation there where he just simply says greeting. And we mentioned how that many can look at that as a kind of a short, curt, unfriendly thing. But again, James is very friendly. He begins the next verse with the idea, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. He immediately gets into his pastor's mode, as it were, and begins to comfort the brethren who are going through sorrows and trials and persecutions. And then seventhly, and this is where we stopped, we didn't get very far into this, but we said that there is a theme to the book of James. In fact, there are themes, but then in general, though, there is a theme. And that theme is... And you can call it several things. You can call it Christian virtue. You can call it Christian uprightness. You may call it Christian integrity, uh, sincerity, Christian living, holy living. Or we could use, this will be novel, we could use the word or the term that James uses to describe what he's talking about in this epistle. It's found in verses 26 and 27. And so this will probably be the term that I will say a lot. 
And I'll explain that here in a few minutes. I know that this can be a bit frightening to some. But notice what he says in verse 26. If, many, if any man among you seem to be religious and brideth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So we can say the general theme of this epistle is true religion, genuine religion, sincere religion. Now, I know for for some, the word religion brings to mind very quickly uh, a lot of doing, a lot of doing in particular without a, any grace behind it or the idea that you're sort of working your way to heaven or you're following a sort of church rules. And and uh, they think when they when, so when you use the word religion, that's what comes to their mind. And truly, there is a lot of that kind of thing around us. There are those who have a religion who are quite graceless who may follow a bunch of rules, church rules, which are totally contrary to God's Word, or they may themselves be trying to uh, do certain works in order to gain heaven. That's all true. We know there are folks like that. But the word itself, religion, or religious for that matter, is good and holy. You know how I know that? Because it's in the Bible. Pure religion and undefiled. Before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And it's true, as James himself says here, a man's religion can be vain. So here again, he's trying to show unto us true religion. So if that word offends you, then you can plug in any of those other terms I gave you this morning when I say these things. You can say Christian integrity. You can say Christian uprightness and so forth. You can just switch that in your mind if you like. But it really means religion. The word religion itself means to be devoted. It means to worship. And that is what I hope we want, is it not? To be true worshipers. To be truly devout. To be, to have in our own hearts true religion, if you please. Again, I know I was brought up in the fundamental circles and a religious fellows was someone who, uh, you know, did a certain amount of things and thought that was going to get him to heaven. But James wants us to know, though, there is a true religion. There is a pure religion and there is a vain religion, no doubt. But he's speaking here of a true religion and he's going to explain then all this to us. So James then is setting forth for us what true and Pure religion consists of. And so this is what we want to begin this morning. We want to begin looking at this very thing. Again, we're not going to do our exposition yet. I'm still working on the introduction. But this is where we want to begin this morning. How James takes the general theme of true religion and then opens it up into the various sub-themes in this epistle. In other words, he shows us what true religion consists of. He'll show you how it's obtained, and then he'll show you the working out and the character of true or pure religion. And so that's what we want to look at this morning as we do kind of a survey 
of the book of James that is before us. Now, the purpose of doing this is to is really twofold. One, it's to help us to see an overall picture of James, thus helping us to understand the epistle. If you don't know what the epistle about is or the letter is about, it's going to be a hard thing to find any kind of uh, enjoyment out of it or any kind of uh, profit as far as the understanding to the mind and to the heart is. And so we want to uh, take this time to thus help us in the understanding of the book of James. And again, to remember, as we commented last week, some see the book of James as just they go immediately to the second chapter and they point their finger right there as with faith without works is dead. And that's usually about as far as they'll get in the book of James. But I'm assuring you this morning, there is a lot of stuff in the book of James. It's full of genuine Christianity. It's full of true religion. And so we need to understand that. The second reason that is under God, I hope to create in all of us here this morning, uh, a desire to listen better so that we won't be just an epistle that seems like there's just a conflict between James and Paul. I want us to see that this is an epistle that's full of those things that I've just mentioned. And as Christians, we want to know what pure religion consists of. I want to know if I'm in that category of men and women who have been saved by the grace of God, who has had a nature put into me by the grace of Almighty God, been born again, and I am walking and I am living in light of the truth of Scripture. James does that for us. This way, we won't be necessarily tossed to and fro whether we are partakers of true religion. Or we may discover in our own hearts that we have never been partakers of true religion. We are still dead in our sins and there is a hell that awaits if we turn not by the grace of God. So you can see that this is a powerful letter. It's a very practical It's a preachy letter. It's, almost, it's a pastoral letter almost to a congregations as they were spread abroad in the particular areas that they were in. So with that in mind, then we're going to look at what it means to have true religion and a survey view, bird's eye view, as it were, of the book of James. The first thing he gets us into as we come to this epistle Right after verse 1, right after who he is, who he's addressing, and the short hello, is that he's going to show us that true religion will be tested. There are always trials, and there are always afflictions, at least in some measure, some kind, in true religion. So true religion will be tested. If you have true religion this morning, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. And it will come by two ways. At least as James, there's other ways. But James narrows it down into two ways. First, obviously, by persecution. I think that's the context of verses down to verse 2 down through verse 12. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Remember, these are brethren who are spread abroad because of whatever reason. And they're being tried and tested because of their religion. And he says, listen, you need to count it all joy when this takes place. The test of your true religion will be, do you count it a joy 
when you fall into diverse temptation. Now, this doesn't mean the happy giddy, yee-haw, I'm in a trial, and I can't wait for the next one. That's not what he means here. But there is this, this peace, this contentment, that when trials come, I have a hope that I'm going to make them through. Make them through them. Because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he has committed against me against that day. He will. So we have a joy, a contentment in trials and adversity. Not only that, I also know I'll grow. Notice that verse 3. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And the word patience there means perseverance. doesn't mean you don't get mad. That's how we Americans use the idea of patience. I lost my patience today. I yelled at the kids. That's not what he means here. What he means is a long-suffering, a continuing on, perseverance. That's another aspect of true religion. Then he gets into the nature of all of this, beginning there in verse 4. And verse 5 there he talks about what we need when we're in trials is to pray. It's not like we're going in this blindfolded. We're going in this without any help. He tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It's easy to quote that verse. It's harder to go back and look and see what that verse is, what's surrounding that verse, isn't it? What is surrounding that verse is the context of trial and adversity. It's not whether I should go eat the second helping of state tonight. Is it this? What shall I do in the midst of my trial? Tell me which way I should walk. Help me not offend. Well, what does the model prayer say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, it's amazing how James and the Lord get along so well, as we can see in these passages. Maybe he was the Lord's brother, after all. Or at least in by the new birth, anyway. Well, another will be by temptation. That's verses 13 through 17. Let no man say when he's tempted... I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So not only will true Christianity or true religion be tested by persecution, it will be tested by temptations. I need to hurry. I won't get through with this. Uh, secondly, we see the source of true religion in this chapter. The source of true... You know, he didn't begin with the source. I was a little amazed about that. He doesn't get into that to a little ways into the epistle. What he began with, again, was a very pastoral theme. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Now he's getting into the reason for the beginning all of it, and that's in verse 18. What is the source of true religion? It is God's saving grace. It is the sovereign implantation of the grace of God in the heart of men. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's a key passage in the book of James. Probably the first one. All of them are key in that sense. But this is an important passage. Dealing with the how we get into the realm of living joyfully in the midst of trials. 
going through patiently through the temptations that we have. It's through the new birth. That is the only way. The only way into eternal life. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, a very religious man, you remember, vain religion, that he must be born again. He must be born again. So here it is. God's sovereign grace of His own will. He saved us. He begat us. Notice that. His own will. We have a theology, if you want to call it that today. It's not really theology at all. But it's an Armenian doctrine. It's the will of man that produces all of this stuff. Not so, according to James. It's God's will. Of His own will, He begat us. Begat us. How does he do it? How does he beget us? Well, with the word of truth. The word of God. That's why you ought to be listening this morning. Instead of looking around, paying attention to everything but what's being spoken. It is the word of God that causes us to be born again. If you want to be born again, you better take heed. better look to God. You better look to His Word. You better hear. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So here's the means that we're born again. It's by the Word of Truth, the Bible, the preaching of the Word of God, preaching of the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God and the salvation of everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, is that all there is to it? No, he says also there in verse 18, that uh, the reason for this is that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're to be like God. I don't mean in the devil's sense. Remember when he was trying to trick Eve into partaking of the forbidden fruit. We need to be faithful, first fruits of his creatures. And he's going to define that now. Not only that, there is to be a growth. This will be the third point. The growth of true religion. True religion is not stagnant. It doesn't just stand still. If you have true religion, you'll grow. Or you don't have true religion. He tells us this, for instance, in verse 19, down through the end of the... unto 25. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and uh, superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Notice that. There ought to be repentance in our lives. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness. You think you can come to God's house living in filthiness and wickedness all week and expect profit? You think you can be linked to the world all week, love, desire, pointing? I'm not saying we don't work in the world, that's true. But our heart in the world rather than just being in the world. And then expect to come on the Sabbath and to be refreshed in the things of God. No, our responsibility is to lay that kind of stuff aside. And then receive with meekness the word. Humble listening. It is so hard to preach to people who already know everything. You ever notice that? 
And there are folks like that. They already know, before I can get the words out, they already know what ought to be said. But what, is, what does James say true religion consists of? It's receiving the word with meekness. Humbleness. That's a test of true religion, isn't it? Those of us proud here this morning of our little bit of knowledge we think we have, doesn't speak well of our true religion, does it? Be humble. Come to this house. Humble and hungry is the way someone has put it. Come to God's house humble and hungry. Ready to receive the word with meekness. Notice the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And then notice, secondly in this, just obedience to the Word. Oh, I'm a good hearer. Listen, I've taken your tapes, Pastor, and I've listened to several times those series of sermons that you've preached on how to hear the Word. I'm very good at it. Great. But then do you go practice it? That's what James is asking here, or telling us. True religion will consist in this. Be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Folks like that. They hear the word. Well, it doesn't make any effect on them. You can go back and read that in Matthew 13 about the parable of the sower, can't you? So this is how we develop true religion. That is the growth of it. Once we're in, saved by the grace of God, the new birth comes in. There ought to be a growth in grace, growth in our true religion. And it won't come apart from this. God has ordained the necessity of the Word of God in our growing in grace. An honest, humble reception and obedience to the Word. That's what you see in these verses. And so it must be there. So again, again a little bit of a test of our true religion. Fourthly, there will be holy living or True religion that's defined. Wouldn't you hate to leave true religion up to me? And I'd hate it even worse to leave it up to you, what true religion is. I'm glad we got a standard of what true religion is. And it's the Bible, the Word of God. And James gives it here to us in a nutshell. This is, and he's going to develop this, believe me, the rest of the way. But he, and I already read these verses, but it's in verses 26 and 27. Here we see true religion defined. This would be probably another key passage. If you want to look at it now, if you're into key passages type of things. The first one is a controlled tongue. If any man among you seem to be religious and brideth not his bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. There's a definition. In the negative of what true religion is. Can't keep the tongue. Gossip. Stuff like that. And we'll get into that more fully. But it's a controlled spirit. He's going to deal with it again in chapter 3. In fact, he's going to spend the remainder of the chapter 3 talking about that issue. And then it's loving, being loving in the sense of uh, a charitableness. In verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. In other words, to take care of them. 
And since we were speaking about deacons this morning, they should lead the way. If you're interested in the office or you're in the office, you should be leading the way on this idea of visiting the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Shame on you if you're not. So again, you've got to have your eyes open. You have to be able to discern it. And we're going to take your cue. Because we're assuming you know what you're doing. Because you're in that office that is to take care of the table of the widows. So we assume, perhaps wrongly so, but we're assuming here you have some understanding in this. Then we'll follow suit. But, again, we're not without excuse, are we, brethren? Because he's not writing to deacons here, is he? Just in case you thought, well, let's just dump it all on our deacons. No, actually, true religion encompasses everyone here. Now, again, you can limit it only to the fatherland widows if you want. But we know from other scriptures that's not all there is to being loving, is it? Hospitality. Even just mere thank yous, being helpful. And it goes back to what? Servitude one of another. That's true religion. What's the other? Purity. Holiness itself. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. Ooh, what do you think of that? Now think of that, really. We go out in the world. We have to go to work. We have to go to school. We, we rub elbows with our lost neighbors, our lost uh, work people, people under us, people over us, people beside us. I got those wrong. Didn't I? Over us, under us, beside us. Uh, we see those every day. And they can tend to rub off, don't they? Their example to us tends to make us want to follow them. But... James says, true religion won't work that way. It can't. We are to keep. Notice this. Oh, God, keep me. No. He's to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, it's true. God does it. He's the one who helps us. But we do it. He works in us both the will and the do of his good pleasure. But we are the one who works out our salvation with fear and trembling. So personal purity is found here, isn't it? True religion consists in that. If you're a drunkard, a fornicator, an adulterer, you steal, all those things that the commandments are against, you're just like the world, you have no true religion, my friend. Your religion is vain, he says. Okay, so that's kind of important, isn't it? That we define true religion. And thus we see it's not what the world normally thinks of religion, then is it? Religion is these things, as James will work them out. And then we see, fifthly, what we would call the evidence or the tests. That's probably not a good word there, test, because we used it earlier. Uh, evidences or, yeah, just so that we'll leave it at evidences of true religion. What are some of the evidences of true religion? How do I know I got it? 
How do you know you got it? That thing. How can I know who I'm dealing with has it? So is that my business? Oh, yeah, it is. Absolutely, it is. Don't you have love one for another? Then you ought to be concerned whether you're brother in Christ, so-called, or friends or relatives have the evidences of true religion. Well, beginning in chapter 2, all the way through chapter half of chapter 5, is that whole thing of, I couldn't think of a word, the whole thing of, uh, of, of evidences towards this idea of being, having true religion. It will consist, first of all, notice in verse 2 once again, verses 1 through 26, an attitude, if we could call it that, a heart, loving deeds. We won't be respectful of persons. Verse 2, if there come among you into you assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment and so forth, how, how would you treat them? Would you treat one differently? Well, of course. The natural idea is to treat them differently, but he says you can't do that. We cannot be partial in our judgment. We can't say, well, they're rich, so I'm going to treat them better. The other guy's poor, so who cares whether he comes or not. We can't be like that. True religion is not like that, he says. We should not be that way because God's chosen, really, verse 5, the poor of this world. So, you better not be thinking that way. And not only that, he says in verse 6 and 7, Don't you remember it's the rich who persecute you? Now, in that time, it's true. I don't know about today so much. Oh, I think we see some of it, but we just don't recognize it as that. The elites are persecuting God's people. Sure. That's why we've lost a lot of our religious liberties thus far. Because of those folks. So that's really there. We just don't call it that any longer or want to to deal with it as such. But uh, persecution comes from verse 6 and 7. But ye have... But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they... Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? Then he gets into the law. Don't tell me the law has no effect upon the believer today. He tells us there that whoever uh, who has respect is also someone who is a transgressor of the law. And then it reminds us if we've, we've broken one, we've broken all. Funny how you can break them if they're not around anymore today. It's a funny how you can be transgressing God's law if suddenly under the new covenant they're no longer applicable. Isn't that strange? Our antinomian fellows are wrong, aren't they? Here's James telling us that true religion does consist in law-keeping. How about that? Kind of bold, isn't it? Where he said, do not commit adultery, he also said, do not kill, verse 11. Now, if, he, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Sounds like to me, you should keep the Ten Commandments. Then he begins to talk about that issue of faith. Faith. After talking about the law, he does bring in faith. Not that the law supersedes faith or faith supersedes the law. They are hand in hand, aren't they? He shows us that there is a faith that saves and there is a faith that doesn't save. 
And we won't get into that because we will when we get into this passage of Scripture. We're not going to deal with the situation. But he's telling us here is that saving faith can be seen. It can be evident. And again, there's, there's the evidence of true religion. If your faith cannot be recognized, then you don't have it. You don't have true faith. If faith cannot be seen in your actions or your actions proceeding from faith, which is what it does, then you have no faith. Saving faith. But you remember, though, the devils believe in God and tremble. But they're not justified, are they? So we have to be careful of that. So there are some, some things there. And then chapter 3, and some further description again, kind of backs up again. And just in case you missed it in chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27, especially 26, he's going to now develop that theme of keeping the tongue. This is true religion, he says. You will have a tongue that is bridled or controlled. That's the mark of true religion. Verses, he spends 18 verses really dealing with it, the whole chapter. And he gives these similitudes here of, of uh, why the tongue is important. But it's such a small little member. Just a little thing, isn't it? And look at all the trouble it brings us. A lot of my troubles are my tongue. Either saying not enough or saying too much. And I'm sure you've all found that as well. But brethren, our true religion will be evidenced by our guard of tongue. So it is important for the true believer to bridle his tongue because, one, it's a proof of spiritual maturity, verses 2 through 5. What he tells us there. For many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and all able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth. That's where he begins the, the similitudes here and how we should keep it. Keep the tongue. So it's a, not only a proof of spiritual maturity, it is the way to it. You don't guard your tongue, you can't be mature. He's telling us, he's warning us of that. Secondly, he tells us it can do a lot of hurt. Even so the tongue, verse 5, is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on the fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. I think you get the idea there from that imagery the tongue can do some hurt, don't you? You know, sticks and stones may break my bones but words can never hurt me. That's not true, is it? Our words do hurt others. That's why we preached here recently. You remember in the ABCs of the Christian walk, how our tongues make a difference. He also shows us that human power cannot control it. And then lastly, it shows us something of the state of our hearts. And then he's going to back up again and talk about personal purity, beginning in chapter 4. See, it's kind of a cycle here. He tells us what true religion is, and then he develops it through the epistle. This is why I said this is why we're doing a survey of it, 
Because that's exactly what James does. He defines it, and then he explains it further in detail. So now, in chapter 4, down through chapter 5, a portion of it, to show us that true religion will consist in personal holiness. You know, as Christians, we have to deal with sin, don't we? That's what he's telling us here. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Looks like indwelling sin there to me. You lust and you have. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You have not because you ask not. Then beginning in verse 6, he talks about pride. Slander in verses 11 through 12. Proud again, or presumption at least, of himself. Verses 3 through 17. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. James says, nope. Your life's like a vapor. You may not make it to do what you want to do. Then beginning in chapter 5, he deals with the sin of coveting. Verses five, one through, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And then he concludes all of this by talking about faith and our perseverance again in trials. Remember, that's where he started, didn't it? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Chapter 1, the trying of your faith worketh patience. Well, now he's going to show us some examples of it. He's going to define it fully, fuller anyway. And show us these things by taking, he says, the prophets, Job. And then there are some closing exhortations to sing, to pray, to confess, and pray again, and to reclaim the brethren. Now, there you have it. There's true religion. Well, I was going to do one more thing, but that's all. So, let me, uh, I was going to show you how often James intertwines with Matthew and Luke on the Sermon on the Mount. And this, several passages that just fit right together. And again, showing us there's no real distinction between what James taught and anyone else in the Scripture. Let me just give, this is just really one application this morning. From all of this. Well, after hearing some of these things, which, is the, which are the characteristics of true religion, let me ask you this morning in application, what is the character then of your religion? Now, all of us here this morning, whether we want to use that term or whether we like to think it or not, we all have a religion. We all do. The point of it is, what sort of a religion is it? What kind of a religion do you have? Do you have a religion that is vain and you're deceived? Or you, do you have a religion that is pure and undefiled? So, well, how will I know? You weren't listening. I just told you. I spent 40-something minutes explaining how you will know whether you have true religion or vain religion. What's the characteristic of it? Does it match what James is saying? 
said, well, after hearing that, I have to admit, my religion is vain. You know, I thought I had some. Until you explain to me, from God's Word, what true religion is. I've seen that I've lived a lie. I've seen that my religion was a sham, that it wasn't true. It was a religion, no doubt. I did a lot of things and didn't do a lot of things. But I didn't see that it was as you saw it from the Word of God today. If your heart is crying out this morning, well, what must I do? Well, the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. One cannot enter into this realm of true religion without the grace of God, as it is found and revealed in Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you know the gospel here this morning. I know we've got visitors. I don't know how much you know or how much you don't know. But just briefly, in a nutshell, that is the gospel is that very means, it's the good news that Jesus came into the world, that He lived this holy and perfect life. And why? Not for Himself, because He was already holy and perfect. But He did it because of sinners. And we have sinned against God. The very thing that makes you not a true religious man is the fact that you've been sinful. Gone your own way, whether in ignorance or whether on purpose. It doesn't matter. Ignorance or purpose will get you to hell just as the same amount of speed and in the, mouth, the same amount of depth as far as that goes. It's sin. The law points out what sin is. You may say, well, I've never committed adultery, but have you stole? Have you lied? And of course you have. And in God's sight, then, you are guilty and thus you deserve the eternal wrath of God in hell. But God has made a covenant with His Son to save sinners. And it's revealed to us in that gospel that we preach. Jesus coming into the world, Him being the substitute for sinners. All those who will believe the gospel, Christ has died for. He gave up His life, was punished by God so that God's justice could be satisfied. And all who repent and all who believe become recipients then of that great grace. Because even the receiving of it is grace itself. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then to the Christian here, those who have true religion. And you say, well, I see it in my life. It's not what it ought to be, but I have to admit, Pastor, it's there. It has its ups and downs, but I can say it's there. Well, what about those downs? I'm here to tell you today, the same blood that cleanses sinners cleanses our sins as well. So you look to Him. Trust Him to forgive you your sins. And then, Christian, if you see any of these in any measure in your heart, it's reason to bless God. Because true religion is a rare thing. There won't be many in comparison to all who have ever been created in this world by God. It is few. The narrow road is just that, very narrow. And few there be that find it. So we ought to be thankful, Christian. 
God has so worked that saving, miraculous grace in our hearts. And He has begot us with the word of truth. Praise His name for it. Because it won't happen any other way.